there are certain TV shows that when I watch them have a bit of an effect on me. I don't know if you've ever watched the show Hoarders, but whenever I watch that show, there is something within me that wants to run out to my garage, run down to my basement, run up to my attic, and throw away anything that I haven't used for the last six months or year or kind of get rid of them in my life. There's another show that has a similar effect, but because of a sort of different way that the show focuses. This particular show wants me, kind of drives me to run up to my attic or into my basement or out into my garage and take a look at what's there and to see if maybe what's there might have some value beyond what I'm aware of. It's the show Antique Roadshow. Ever watch it? Sometimes they have the ugliest things on that show. But yet, as they're going through and talking about it, you come to realize as there's an expert there, and the expert begins to talk about the, the indications that this is something incredibly valuable. The expert knows where to look, and the expert does their research, and the expert looks for certain marks and certain indications that, first of all, that the object is authentic and real. And then later, they come to determine the value. So I was thinking about that. I came across one of those little clips about Antique Roadshow. And the bronze bottom does have on the foot the Tiffany Studios mark, and this lamp is circa 1910. Now, this chain has been put on here later. This is a process that can be reversed to make it the way it was originally, which should get done to the piece. All right. Now, I found a couple auction records. This was very difficult to find. It's extremely rare. And I would say today, in a retail market, you might find this piece at $30,000 to $40,000. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Kathy, thank you so much. I can't believe it. Wow. That thing's ugly. I guess I don't have the proper um, artistic evaluation of it. But did you notice what the, the expert did? The expert was able to pick it up, and there's more there. I just shortened it and, and edited it down, but talked about the, the bronze stand and talked about how they had researched and looked and tried to find a piece like that, talked about the glass, and, and again, not in the clip, but earlier, and then, you remember, she picked it up, looked at the bottom, and there was the stamp of authenticity. Even knew that the chain wasn't right. And then went out and researched what it was worth. Now, there's some things that I have in my house that are old, and I, I often want to go to Antique Roadshow and see if they're worth anything. But there's an even more important question about Authenticity and realness, and value. 
And that has to do with my spiritual life. What are the ways, not that I judge others, and as we go through this message, I don't want you to be thinking about that person. As we go through the message, I want you to be thinking about this person. Not me, you. (laughs) I want you to be asking the question, do I show the signs of authenticity? Am I in the process of moving in that direction? And and maturity and authenticity in our Christian life is, is not something we attain. It's a process that we are moving in. Now you remember as we've been dealing with 2 Corinthians that Paul is addressing a struggle that was existing between Paul and the church at Corinth. They were questioning his authenticity. They were questioning his authenticity as a believer in Christ. But even more disconcerting to Paul was they were questioning his authenticity as an apostle. They were questioning the authenticity of his ministry as the founder of the church. And most disconcerting of all for Paul, they were questioning the authenticity of his message. And Paul understood that he brought the gospel. He brought the message of hope. He brought the only message of hope. That exists in a fallen world. And he understood that if they rejected the message. They were rejecting Christ. They were rejecting the relationship they had with Christ. They were rejecting all the reality that he had brought. And so he began to address the ways that they could understand him. To be truly an apostle. The first thing he does is he sort of enters into their way. You'll remember, they were boastful. They were boastful about their ecstatic ecstatic experiences. They were boastful about their titles. They were boastful about their their extreme and and rhetoric and their incredible ability to to present and to teach and and to, to proclaim. And they would look at Paul and say, Paul, you don't have the titles. He doesn't boast about his titles. He doesn't boast about his experiences. He doesn't boast about this. He doesn't boast about that. What kind of apostle is he? And so Paul says, all right, I will enter into that foolishness. And Paul said, I have the titles. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a true Israelite. I'm a child of Abraham. Titles of honor in that area. He goes on to say, you want to talk about experiences? I'll talk about experiences. And the whole time he's saying, I'm a fool doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this. But then Paul says, but you know what I boast about most? I boast about the weakness that shows God's power. That's the source of my authenticity. And with that thinking in mind, Paul comes to the end of what's called the boastful message. And he says, here's the the crux of it. 
Here's what I want you to understand. Here's where authenticity is found. Here's where my Christian life is headed. Here's what maturity looks like as I move in that direction. Not that I arrive, but I move in that direction. What do I seek in my Christian life? My Christian walk. And what Paul proclaims as we come to chapter 12 and those first 10 verses is this. Maturity. Authenticity, depth of faith is evidence in our dependent response to what we don't control. You see, these false apostles, these, as they called themselves, super apostles, would take pride in their titles. And and, and Paul's response is, you didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose what tribe you were in. You didn't choose those things. God chose chose those things. They took pride in their spiritual experiences, sort of those amazing experiences that God brings into a life. And Paul is saying, you don't control those. That's a gift from God. They were taking pride in in the fact that their lives were all put together and their rhetoric was always perfect and they could brag about all the greatness that they were experiencing in their life. And again, Paul says, you don't control that. Spirituality is not found in those kinds of things. Spirituality is found in how we respond to those things in our life. Paul deals with, I think, two areas that we struggle with today. And we begin to believe that they really are indicators of maturity or spirituality. And Paul says, you know what? They're really not. The first area that Paul deals with is what he begins there in in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says... Okay, I have to go on boasting because of this foolishness that that you are responding to. And although there is nothing to be gained, there's nothing of value in these things. There's nothing significant in terms of ministry, in terms of authenticity. And he says, let's talk about visions and revelations. Let's talk about those ecstatic experiences, those religious experiences, those spiritual experiences where just things seem emotionally just overwhelming. Paul says when it comes to authenticity, that's not the standard. In fact, what he wants us to understand is this. Religious experience, even when it's God-given, and Paul questioned whether or not the the, the experiences of these false apostles were even true or God-given. But even if they are God-given, they don't validate spirituality. They validate that God was involved in an activity at that moment, but doesn't determine whether or not you are truly walking with the Lord. As you begin to look at it, 
Paul reluctantly shares an incredible God-given spiritual experience. He he begins to talk about it as you you read down and he says in verse 2, I know a man, and by the way, it's me, but I don't say that because I want to be cautious and I don't want to sound proudful. But I know this man. Sometimes when you're preaching, one of the things I tell you in preaching is, don't ever tell stories that make you look good. And so one of the ways to avoid that, if you want to tell a story that you think fits well in a message, is you just say, I have a friend. Well, hopefully I'm friendly with me. Paul says, I don't want to seem proud, but I know a man. And we know it's him because later on he goes on to talk about, you know, I and what God did to me and things like that. But he begins that way, just to kind of be cautious as I know a man who fought. 14 years ago. Paul goes back 14 years. This isn't necessarily a daily experience in Paul's life. He had one of those experiences when he came to the Lord and he saw the Lord and he saw him resurrected. And, and the Lord says to him, you know, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, and he had an experience. Here's another one 14 years ago that Paul has. Now, what's so interesting is that you find, nowhere else do you find this experience in any of the other writings about or by Paul. This is the only place that it's mentioned. This is the only place that it's spoken of. And we know some things about it. It must have happened, obviously, after his conversion. It must have happened after his trip to Jerusalem where they established, yes, that Paul had really responded to the gospel and he was now a believer. And sometime between that and when he was commissioned in Antioch to be a missionary with Barnabas. It's in what's known as the silent years in Paul's life. We we don't really know what happened. Paul says 14 years ago, an amazing experience took place. You want to one-up? I'll one-up you with this one. And then he describes it. And he says, this is what that experience was like. He says, I know a man who was caught 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. This that I'm putting my hand through is the first heaven. It's the air that surrounds me in their cosmology. The second heaven was the heaven where you see the, the, the stars and the, the moon and the sun. The third heaven was where God dwelt. Paul says, I was taken directly before God. Like John in, 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 in the book of Revelation. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, you know, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and I saw him in his very throne room. Paul says, I don't know if I was in my body. I don't know if it was just in my spirit. I don't know. And again, there's, there's all kinds of reasons he does that because of Gnosticism at the time. But he's saying, I'm not sure exactly how it happened. But I went to the third heaven. I went to paradise. I went to the place where those who have died are dwelling with God himself. And I heard things. I can't even tell you. Either because, both because I'm forbidden or because they're ineffable. You can't describe them. Now, in our day, Paul would have run out and immediately written a book. 
or made the, the talk show circuits. Paul says, you know what? That's not all that important. It's not all that significant. In Paul's life it was, but in terms of ministry, in terms of authenticating him as an apostle or, or his teaching or the quality of his ministry, Paul says that's not important. There's things that are more important. As Paul is speaking about it, he takes extreme steps. To avoid any sense of superiority. Look what I got from God. Or any sense of claim. Over and over he says it's foolish for me to share this. Over and over Paul says this is, this is insignificant. Again not in his own life. Not as a gift of God. But insignificant to validate his walk. Now, why would Paul share it and yet share it so carefully? Why did he do that? Well, I think there are a couple reasons as you look at the text. First of all, such experiences can be valid. Paul said, this one is true. I'm not sure about those so-called super apostles, those false teachers. But this really happened in my life. And I've known people that have had experiences similar to this. I know people who have shared that they had experiences where God did something that was so beyond the ordinary that they had a real sense of of God's presence. And and they can be valid. Sometimes they can be fake. People just make stories. But it's valid. So Paul says, okay, I'll share it. It's true. Such experiences are a special gift from God. Paul says, you know, I'll boast of such a man. God gave him something special. It's a a way to give God glory and to give God praise and to give God honor. But as far as I'm concerned, as far as me, it doesn't validate or authenticate anything. In fact, Paul wants us to understand what validates him, what what declares his ministry to be authentic, what declares his relationship with Christ to be authentic, is found as you get towards the end of that passage. He says there in in verse 6, he says, even if I should choose to boast, to, to talk about these, I, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. Why? Because it's not about the experience. He goes on to say, I don't want anyone to think more of me than is warranted by what, and let's see the next two key words, by what I do and what I say. Paul says authenticity is not found in these amazing experiences. They're found in what I proclaim, whether it's true or false, whether it's based on God's word, whether it's authenticated by the revelation that God has presented us, not in visions, 
but through the Old Testament, through the teaching of Jesus, through the interpretation of the life of Christ. It's historical. It's based on things that people saw and touched and heard together. Based on what I do, how do I live out this faith? And so Paul wants us to understand that in authenticating spirituality in our walk, such experiences do not legitimize someone's claims to truth. Don't come to me and say, you have to believe what I've said because I had this miraculous experience. You know what? If that teaching and that miraculous experience violates the truth of God's word, then I will reject it. Those kinds of experience don't validate what, what I say. It's God's word that validates what I say. It's what I speak what I teach. Paul says, I base my teaching not on some ecstatic experience of being taken up into the third heaven. What do I base my teaching on? I base it on the Old Testament. I base it on what the prophets said about the coming Messiah. I base it upon what the scriptures talk about when they talk about God and the sacrificial system. I base it on that. I base it on the teaching of Jesus and on his life and based on things that we can all know. Not some ineffable or unique experience. Such experiences do not validate the authenticity of a ministry. You don't listen to somebody because they had some amazing experience. You listen to someone because of the character of their lives. Does it reflect the reality of Scripture? Are they the kind of man and woman that Paul talks about in, in Titus chapter 1 and in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3? Are they people that demonstrate the very character of God? And then thirdly, such experiences are not the foundation of my daily walk with Christ. Too many people believe that I have to have some kind of wild-eyed, amazing experience on a continual basis in order for me to have a sense of God's presence in my life. There's real danger in this. There's danger in, in, in a number of different ways. There's, there's dangers in, in those times when we say that experience rather than my true spiritual walk becomes the foundation of, of a, a declaration of my maturity. And we see it in big ways, sort of the, the charismatic experiences. If, if you don't have those, you're not as spiritual. But we also do it in other ways. I remember back in Louisiana, someone coming up to me and saying, you know what, as a church, we're not spiritual because we haven't done this particular Bible study. If you know me, you know that's not the way to come to me. Because my response tends to be, yeah, well, watch this. That's not godly. 
We're not more, more mature because we've done this Bible study or we've been to this experience or we've been to doing this or we've been to doing that or, or we've had this, you know, amazing, miraculous event. I want to know what you believe. Is it based on God's word? I want to know the character of your life. Does it represent Christ? Not do I have the right pedigree to check off, the right experience to check off. And you know, you know some of the experiences if you if you've not spoken in tongues or if you've not had this miracle or if you had not had that miracle, and you know, the checklist can go on. If you, you haven't done this this Bible study or you haven't gone to this kind of gathering or you've never you know Paul says, you know what, that's not the means of authenticating your walk. It's the quality of what you believe and the quality of how that's lived out in your life. I hear this in other ways. I can't tell you the number of people that have come and are trying to justify something that is in opposition to God's word. And they do it on the basis of, yeah, but I've experienced it and I just feel it's from God and it can't be wrong. I hear that times when in, in divorce situations, or I hear that in times when, when people are involved in, in, in immorality or, or other kinds of things, or they're involved in some kind of unethical behavior. Well, but I just feel God's validation. This, God's word, is his validation, not your experience. I remember talking to somebody about this and they said, I know your biblical arguments, but I've experienced this and I know it's from God. I don't care what your biblical arguments are. And I thought, how terrifying. Paul says, those experiences, those emotions are not an indication of authenticity or maturity. They're a gift from God. If you've experienced them, but also they're not necessary for your daily walk. Several years ago, the church I was a part of went to one of the Promise Keepers gatherings. And if you've ever been to Promise Keepers where, you know, at this particular one, there was over 80,000 men that had gathered together in Texas Stadium. And I've shared this before. And we were praying and we, I mean, we were singing and we began to sing holy, holy Holy, Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my song will rise to thee. And suddenly the band cut out. And 80,000 men, the top of their lungs, were singing and praising and honoring God. It was a About four months later, family in our church came to visit me in my office and they said, Keith, we're leaving the church. I said, why? And the man said, well, if I don't experience what I experienced at Promise Keepers every Sunday here at the church, something is wrong and I'm leaving. I wanted to say, well, do we teach truth? Do we seek to worship God? 
Do we, do we gather together and share what God is doing? Do we, do we seek and, and follow after a desire to want to worship him? But because of the experience that they thought was necessary wasn't there, they were abandoning. Beloved, experience is not an indication of authenticity. Feelings are a gift from God, but they're not a validation. But now Paul goes to the other side, and he wants to say, you know, there are certain things that don't invalidate my walk either. There are certain things that do not indicate that I'm in the midst of a spiritual struggle or that I'm not being faithful or I'm not being mature in my walk. And so Paul goes on and he says, you know, because I had this incredible experience, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And he says this God-given struggle it doesn't, doesn't invalidate my spirituality either. Too often we believe that somehow if we're mature believers, we just go through life, you know, oh, I'm so happy, so very happy. I have the love of Jesus in my life. I may know joy, but I'm not necessarily happy. I can know joy and faithfulness even when I'm not thrilled. Struggle does not invalidate my spiritual life. Struggle does not invalidate my spiritual maturity. I, at 7.30 on Sunday mornings, and as I'm getting ready to come in, I've shared this several times, um, Tony Evans is on. I love listening to Tony Evans. Um, he just has a way about his preaching, how he presents things. Do you know what his message was on this morning? Depression is not an indicator of a lack of faith. Sometimes Christians struggle emotionally. Sometimes Christians struggle relationally. <clears throat> Sometimes Christians struggle physically. Sometimes Christians struggle financially. All Christians struggle at times living in a fallen world. But it's not an indication of a lack of spirituality or maturity or an absence of God's presence in my life. And Paul is so clear about that. This is probably one of the most... Famous passages in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the thorn in his flesh. And the fact is that Paul shares about this. And we don't know what the thorn is, but we know it's existed for 14 years. Paul says it was given to me when I had that experience 14 years ago. For 14 years, Paul has struggled with this thorn in the flesh. This painful experience. And God hasn't removed it. Paul mustn't be very spiritual. Paul mustn't have much faith. 
uncertain. We're not really sure. And I've read all kinds of things about what the thorn in the flesh was. Some think it was emotional, that he struggled with discouragement and depression. One of the greatest preachers that have ever lived. Oh, can't think of his name. Spurgeon, thank you. Just went whoop. Spurgeon struggled with depression all of his life. Called it melancholy. Some think that's what it was. Some think that it had to do with sort of those that were constantly opposing him, though. I don't think that fits the contest. Some think Paul was, wi- was married and it was his wife. I don't think that's true. Probably it was physical. That the word Paul uses that, that it, it oppresses him, it, it beats against him, is a word that's talked about, you know, smacking somebody in the head. Something that maybe it had to do with headaches or, or his, his problem with his vision causing him physical struggles. We don't know. Corinthians did. Paul says, I've struggled with her for 14 years. And I'm sure people came up to him and said, you're an apostle and you can't even heal yourself. Paul says, that's invalid. The struggle was used by his opponents and used by Satan to try to humiliate and discredit him and his ministry. If you've ever struggled with depression or anxiety, you know how Christians can do that. If you've ever struggled with areas of temptation, you know how Christians can do that. Paul says... That doesn't invalidate my walk, my apostleship, my ministry. Paul wants us to understand that faithful people face struggles that may come from God. And the reason why I use may there is, yes, all things that we face in our life come through God's sovereignty, his work in our lives, his plan, his purpose. But sometimes God really does allow specific things to come into our lives. He has a purpose for them. In this case, Paul's thorn in the flesh, it says of that thorn that it was given to him. It's called the divine passive. That God's hand brought it into his life for a purpose. Now, it was used by Satan in in bad ways to try to discourage him and discredit him. But Paul says, you know what? God is involved. And God is using this. He goes on to talk about the struggle and he says, faithful people will pray for the end of such a struggle. God, please remove it. And the word there three times, it doesn't mean he just prayed three prayers and then ended. The idea is more like on three different occasions, he was beseeching God. And it may have been over a period of time. It may be three times when it sort of erupted in his life or it was a unique struggle or it was uniquely difficult. Three different times, fervently, Paul is saying, God, can't you remove this? God's response was, Paul, I have a greater purpose than its removal. And that's the thing that Paul wants us to understand, that faithful people know clearly that if the struggle continues, the outcome is of far greater value than its removal. 
Now, that's a process. We don't necessarily start there. Paul didn't start there. But he got there. That's the aim. God, yes, take it. But if you don't, I'll know that there is something even greater than its removal. Paul said for him it was an experience of God's grace. Paul says, I can't lose. If God removes it, well, then it's removed. But if it stays, I get to experience God in a way I never could have experienced him otherwise. Paul says, it's not easy. This doesn't take the pain or the hurt away. But there's a purpose. Now, Paul was given a gift. Most of the time, we don't know specifically what God's purpose is and may not know until we hit eternity. But we can be certain that God's grace will be more valuable than its removal. And faithful people come to value the experience of God's grace and power more than the elimination of the struggle. One of the amazing things of going through Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath was I never met anyone that said, oh, I'm so glad our house was destroyed. I'm so glad the flooding came up. I'm so glad all my things were wiped out. I never heard that. But you know what I did here? Over and over and over and over And over again, is I would not trade the experience of God's grace and God's power and God's faithfulness and God's sufficiency and God's love for anything. Paul says, you know, I would love for it to be removed. But the grace, the faithfulness, the amazing experience of relationship with God is so much greater. That Paul does this. Notice how he ends this paragraph. He says, I will therefore boast all the more. In fact, in the Greek, it's the first word of this sentence. Gladly. Not because of the pain, not because of the hurt, not because of the suffering. He isn't saying, oh, well, I'd love to suffer. But he's saying, what God does through it, I gladly accept. So that in verse 10, he said, that is why, for Christ's sake, in my relationship with Christ, through my relationship with Christ, through the intimacy that it builds, through the faithfulness that I experience, I will delight. Not in the suffering, but in what it produces. And I can thank God for that. So as Paul ends it, he says, maturity is evidenced by our rejoicing in God's sufficiency, his power, his faithfulness in the midst of that struggle. 
God, I learned to hold on to you in a way I never thought I could. And by the way, that grace is not there beforehand. That grace comes in the midst. As each day I need it. So as Paul is ending this up, he's saying, we are called to value what suffering produces, not the suffering itself. But I can value what God will do with it and how he will use it. Because of our relationship with Christ, suffering is never wasted. Suffering is just too costly to waste. But God uses it in our lives. In a fallen world, we are going to know tribulation and struggle. But God uses it for eternal purposes. It's never wasted as we respond faithfully. And then finally, sharing our struggles provides an opportunity to glorify God for his grace and sufficiency. I know how we come to church. Cindy and I do it too. You walk in the door and the smile goes on. Even though you just fought the whole way to church, even though, you know, the car wouldn't start in the morning, even though you got grease on your pants trying to jump the, the, you know, all of that, and you come in and, and, and we want to put on the airs. Paul says, I don't want to put on airs. I want to put on God's grace and demonstrate his faithfulness. Now, we don't arrive there. It's where we aim. The psalms that were read this morning by the worship team were all lament psalms. All of them were psalms that said, God, I'm hurting. But the most amazing thing about lament psalms to me is always the end. When the psalmist writes, you know, but I tasted God. I came into his presence. I waited for him to arrive. And he was good. For those that know Christ as their savior, the authenticity of our walk is not found in some kind of experience. It's not found in the absence of struggle. It's found in our desire to learn more and more how to depend upon God's sufficiency and God's grace, even in the midst of the struggle. Father, thank you for Paul and for his ability to write. Father, he doesn't boast about his struggle, but he boasts about you and your sufficiency. Father, thank you that we can know your love no matter what the circumstances is because your love doesn't depend on the circumstances. It depends on what Christ accomplished on that cross. You demonstrated your love by sending your son. And Father, we begin that relationship by accepting, trusting, embracing what your son has already accomplished for us. Father, we always invite any who are not certain of that to come and to speak to somebody, to know how they might know that. Father, thank you also that we can be dependent upon your grace, upon your sufficiency, upon your love. Father, help us to delight not in the suffering, but in the certainty and the knowledge and the experience of your sufficiency, of your power, and of your grace. 
for your glory and for your kingdom. And we ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.